Turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 20, your Bible. You received a new prayer guide today. I just want to encourage you to use that. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I also want to encourage, uh, as you come to the Wednesday evening prayer meeting, uh, as we have opportunity to pray for one another there, we also have a guide for us to be able to pray for those things. Sometimes our prayers are focused on just the prayer requests that are made that evening, and we certainly don't want to omit those, but we also want to be faithful to pray for our church family. Exodus chapter 20, we're coming to an end of our study of the Decalogue as we have made our way through. It's been months, and we thank the Lord for His Word and for an opportunity to look at these commands, sometimes several messages on one. Uh, As we look at uh, the last commandment here, this is the second message on the Tenth Commandment, I trust the Lord will teach us through this word, verse 17. As God is uttering these words from the top of the mountain, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet. And I want to just draw attention again to that statement. I think it's true that Newton said, John Newton, I consider covetousness as the most generally prevailing and ensnaring sin by which professors of the gospel in our materialistic society are hindered in their spiritual progress. A disposition deeply rooted in our fallen nature, strengthened by the custom of all around us, the power of habit and the fascinating charm of wealth is not easily counteracted. If we are indeed genuine believers in Christ, we are bound by obligation and required by our scriptural rule to set our affections on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. Christ has called us out of the world and cautioned us against conformity to its spirit. While we are in the world, it is our duty, privilege, and honor to manifest that grace which has delivered us from the love of the world. Christians must indeed eat and drink and may buy and sell as other people do, but the principles, motives, and ends of their conduct are entirely different. They are to adorn the doctrine of God, their Savior, and to do all for His glory. Those interesting statements, a disposition deeply rooted in our fallen nature, strengthened by the custom of all around us, the power of habit, And the fascinating charm of wealth is not easily counteracted. What counteracts it? Certainly when God saves a sinner, when he brings new life, causes a person to be born again, calls them to repentance, there's a call to turn 
from covetousness. I hope to look at some specific examples of that a little bit later on, but the call of the gospel is a call to turn from sin, this sin of covetousness, as all the rest, is to be turned from and continually turned from. If it is a disposition deeply rooted in our fallen nature and we still have remaining sin, according to Romans chapter 7, and certainly throughout the Bible we see that, this is not something that is distant from us. This is not something that you can repent once and expect that it's totally gone. Like someone drew attention to the connection between covetousness and all the rest of the commandments. Thomas Watson, in his work on the Ten Commandments, said, Covetousness breaks the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The covetous person has more than one god. Wealth is his god. He has a god of gold and therefore is called an idolater. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Covetousness breaks the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. A covetous person bows down, not to the graven image in the church, but to the graven image on his coin. Again, it's idolatry. Covetousness breaks the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Absalom's plan was to get his father's crown. That was covetousness, but instead of... He talked of paying his vow to God, which was taking God's name in vain. That was his first act following stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. He said, I need to go pay a vow to God in Hebron. Took God's name in vain. That wasn't his purpose. Covetousness breaks the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. A covetous person does not keep the Lord's day. He will attend to his own business on a Sunday, and instead of reading God's Word, the Bible, he will pursue his own interests. Covetousness breaks the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Covetous person does not honor his father if he does not help him in his necessities. He may even get his father to make over his estate to him in his lifetime so that the father will be at his son's command. You can see that playing out sometimes in the Gospels in in terms of children who desired the possessions of their parents or did not want to honor their parents. Covetousness breaks the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Covetous Ahab killed Naboth to get his vineyard. And then he asks the question, how many have swum to the crown in blood? That's how they obtained Covetousness breaks the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. It causes immorality. How did David sin against the Lord? He coveted another man's wife. Covetousness breaks the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. It's the root of theft. Covetous Achan stole the bar of gold. Thieves and the covetous are put together, where 1 Corinthians 6.10 says, Nor thieves nor the covetous among others, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Places them right together. Covetousness breaks the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. What except covetousness makes the perjurer a false oath? Or take a false oath, rather. He hopes. Why does he do that? He hopes for a reward. So it's covetousness, this internal desire that's driving the life. Deeply rooted. 
in our disposition and encouraged by the world around us. The Lord commands his people not only not to steal, but not to desire what belongs to their neighbor. God will rule in the hearts of his people, not just over their actions. Some have suggested that this command actually shows us, in part, that the rest of the commandments also are dealing with the internal. This is not just Ten Commandments for outward actions. The Ten Commandments deal with the internal, with the heart of man. And of course, God does give us the freedom within His creation to desire and to possess legitimately. He did that in the garden for Adam and Eve as He gave them the fruit of the trees of the garden. They had everything except for that one. And it was in that one that they transgressed and sinned against the Lord. When it comes to our freedom to exercise legitimate desire, God says, you shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. And if you look through the verse, notice how many times it refers to the neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Remember that this word neighbor refers to someone who may live nearby you or it could be someone who you know well and regard with affection and trust. It's not somebody that literally lives next door to you. It could, it could certainly is that person, but beyond that, the Scriptures use this word to describe those who work together, like two people cutting wood in a forest together, Deuteronomy 19, someone who works for a person, like David did for Saul, even a family member, 2 Samuel 12, David spoke of Absalom that way. It can refer to a husband or a wife, Song of Solomon 5 and Hosea 3. So this word is applied in many different relationships. It's meant to be understood as really what belongs to another person. And if you're obviously in covenant with someone and that covenant has united your life and theirs, we're not talking about that. We're talking about those outside So do you look at and compare what you have with what your neighbor has? And do you look with desire at their possessions? That's what the Lord calls attention to here, a house, a spouse, a wife. Certainly that would apply to husband as well. Male or female servants, that might not so much apply in our current situation, ox, donkey, as you make application beyond an agrarian society, you could be talking there about what brings uh, strength to the work of someone, uh, tools you might say, or transportation, 
but then it's extended to, at the end of the verse, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. I'd ask you to turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 12. You might ask the question, well, what about those things that you can legitimately buy? Luke chapter 12. In other words, you have the money, you've earned it by your hard work. What about the things that I could purchase and have in my possession? And in response to that question, I would say, is it a need? I would also ask another question, is possessing those things that you desire, is that what life is all about? Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, speaking of Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is of true value? What is life about? And as you think about things that you can legitimately buy, and this is not the direction of the entire message, but I think it's appropriate to say, the Lord does say to pray, give us this day our daily bread. There are needs that we do have. There are things that we, as we possess them, can use for our good, for our family's good, for the good of others. It's not a wrong thing to use this world and the wealth that the Lord may give us, but we have to remember that it's that. It's the Lord giving us and then our being a steward of what he has given us. This man was treasuring up things for him. Notice it says, verse 21, for himself. It's, it's, it was for himself. And then it says, and is not rich towards God. So the Tenth Commandment certainly forbids covetousness. The Tenth Commandment also teaches us that we are to trust the Lord and be content with what He has given us. Those Westminster pastors and teachers, as they met together, they asked the question, what are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? They considered the sins. We considered that the last time, greed, envy, 
But they said the duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor that all our, as that all our inward motions and affections touching him, referring to our neighbor, tend unto and further all the good which is his. So they were drawing attention to a heart that is content, but also with respect towards our neighbor and what belongs to them a charitable frame or an attitude towards them. And I want to just look at that first thought there of contentment. You must not covet. Contentment. Replacing covetousness with contentment is... Our task, in part, in the Christian life, obviously, the Lord teaches us. He helps us. Classic work on the subject of contentment called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. This is submission to God in my circumstances, my life, and also satisfaction with what he has provided. I mentioned Matthew Henry, Philip Henry. Matthew Henry listened to his father teach, preach different times, and he recorded what his father, Philip, spoke of contentment. He described it this way, when the mind and the condition meet there is contentment. Now, in order to that, either the condition must be brought up to the mind, and that is not only reasonable but impossible, for as the condition rises, the mind rises with it. Or else the mind must be brought down to the condition. And he says that's both reasonable and possible. So does your mind... You think about the condition that you have, is it more, more, more? Or based upon what you have, can you say, I have enough? Or even better, I have all that I need. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Wow. That's a different message than the message of this world. Discontentment, covetousness, a heart that is restless and wanting more, is really just a sinful heart. That covetousness, that discontentment is expressed because that's what my heart is. That's what my heart does. It wants. The eyes of man are never satisfied, the proverb says. John Flavel, as he preached on this commandment, said there are several things that contribute to our discontentment. One of them is a sinful heart, cited Mark chapter 7, that which proceeds out of the man, that which defiles the man, is that which defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness. That's Jesus' analysis, correct diagnosis of our heart 
He said all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So we could expect that because of our sinful hearts, we would be tempted towards covetousness. Right? Do you feel it? Without even the world's influence, do you feel that? The desire for more? Desire for what belongs to someone else that you don't have? And even without those outside influences, that's what our heart is. But we can actually feed that discontentment. And it really doesn't take much. Sometimes it just takes seeing things. That's what happened to Achan. He just saw something and he wanted it. I remember a mechanic by the name of Eddie when I spent some time in Hawaii. When I came into his garage one day, we were having dinner or something at his house and came into his garage and he's a truck mechanic. And he had blankets lining the walls of his garage. And I was, I was kind of curious about that, and he said, well, this, my tools are under there. And I said, are you just trying to keep them dust-free? And probably had that purpose, too, but he said, no, really, I'm just trying to keep them out of view. His house, the garage, was not very far from the street. If his garage door was open and those tools were visible and he had a substantial amount, people could see them. And if people could see them, people could want them. And if people wanted them, they might steal them. And so he said, I have to be careful about the eye of other people. It's an interesting observation. That just by seeing, we would want something. And we just look at the world. Just go to the mall. There's lots to see. You don't even have to go to a place. You can just open up your computer or look on your phone and you can see things and click, click, click and that stuff magically shows up on your doorstep. How does it happen? We have to guard not against using the world. It's not a sin to go to the mall. It's not a sin to shop online, have something delivered, but covetousness is a sin. And Life is not all about stuff. I love the prayer in Proverbs 30, verse 7. Would you turn over there with me? Proverbs 30. The words of Agur portion of the Proverbs collected from the wise sayings of people. This believer in God said in verse 7, Two things I asked of you, capital Y, he's speaking of God, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. There's some wisdom in that prayer. Notice how he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. He doesn't want either one so that he would not sin against the Lord. Now the reality is God may give someone poverty in part in his wise plan so that they will turn to him. 
God sometimes gives reversals in life where someone has and then they don't have. And that reversal can mean that person is in need like they never had before and the only recourse is to look up to God. And that's the right place to look up whether you have or whether you don't have. And he wants to be right in the middle. Because the reality is, verse 9, that sometimes, and this is what God warned the Israelites about, sometimes when we're full, we just become independent. We think that we don't need the Lord. We've got enough. We don't pray, and we're not asking for daily bread. But then, obviously, if I don't have, the end of that verse, he says, or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So we have wicked and sinful hearts, and we can certainly expect to be tempted, and we can feed that discontentment, or we can be, as this prayer, I think, gives, a good prayer for, feed me with food that is my portion. Help me to be content with what you give to me. Another reason Flavel said that we are discontent as we're ignorant of God's wisdom and his love. Remember, God, as God, is perfectly wise. Doesn't just have some wisdom, a lot of wisdom. He's perfectly wise. And there are times where he places us in a position of want, something we don't have that we may need, And the reason he places us in that position is so that we will look to him. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. I've been meditating on that. Came out in my prayer this morning. So he does work all things after the counsel of his own will, but not just in the big picture, but also in our small picture, our individual lives. And there are times where he withholds so that we'll look up, And we will look to him, and we will ask, and then he'll provide. You remember the children of Israel were in the desert, and during certain times they didn't have water, they didn't have food, and that was for extended time to the point that they started to grumble and complain. And what was God teaching them? He was teaching them in part that they did not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. You don't need just material things. You need God. Moses said in Deuteronomy 8, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you to understand that man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so we're ignorant of God's wisdom and his plan for us to teach us that we need him and also his love for us. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And sometimes what he's doing for our good is he's withholding things so that we might develop a closer relationship to him. Unless we think any ill of God lest we think that he's just not giving us what we need. Remember, he has given you what you need most in his son. He has not spared his own son. He delivered him over for us all. And how will he not with him freely give us all things? And those all things are not worldly things. They're 
eternal things. We have an eternal inheritance. Things that truly matter. So we are ignorant of God's wisdom and love, and sometimes it takes some experience in life, and we grow in our contentment as we realize that God has other purposes besides just fulfilling that, what I think is my immediate need. Jerry Bridges, Christian writer, very influential. I know some of you have read some of his books, very helpful for my Christian life, but he gave a testimony in a book he calls he called Respectable Sins. He was talking about discontentment. And he said after the death of his first wife, someone sent him a card with this quote. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, relinquish what you take. Obviously, that would have been a challenge to him as God took his nearest neighbor, the one who he had covenanted with, his wife. But the encouragement of this friend was to trust the Lord, to recognize that the Lord knew best, even regarding that relationship. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, relinquish what you take. It's a good prayer, not just regarding losing a spouse. but life. He is good. He's wise. He knows. Flavel also said we're inconsiderate of what we really need. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Covering. Clothing. Shelter food, that which sustains our life. Are you content with that? Our world certainly preaches we need so much more than that, doesn't it? In this day and age, we might think, and we might genuinely, because of our responsibilities, circumstances, say, I need transportation too. I can't walk here. Okay, you need some transportation. Do you need the latest, greatest transportation? Are you content with what the Lord has provided for you in your condition, with your set of circumstances, or do you always have to be pushing for more? And obviously, if you get a horse, you've got to feed it. Right? 
You say, I'm not even thinking about getting a horse. It's a car, right? David Brainerd, at times as a missionary, had a horse. But it was a challenge to find food sometimes for himself and his horse. And the Lord provided. David Brainerd, doing the Lord's will, teaching people, telling people about the gospel. It's a portion of his biography where writer tells about his journeys, and I'm just going to read a portion here to give you some sense of what he went through. The next day, he set out on his journey to the Susquehanna with his interpreter. He endured great hardships and fatigues in his way, thither through a hideous wilderness, which after having lodged one night in the open woods, he was overtaken with a northeasterly storm in which he was almost ready to perish. Having no manner of shelter and not being able to make a fire with so great a rain, he could have no comfort if he stopped. Therefore, he determined to go forward in hopes of meeting with some shelter, without which he thought it impossible to live the night through. But their horses, happening to eat poison, he's going with his interpreter, their horses ate poison, says, for the want of other food at the place where they lodged the night before. And the horses were so sick that they could neither ride nor lead them, but were obliged to drive them and travel on foot until, through the mercy of God, just at dusk, they came to a bark hut where they lodged that night. Just imagine that. Serving the Lord, and then when they see that hut, a place to be. But the horses, which were helpful, became a burden. I'm not saying he didn't need one. I mean, he's traveling up the Susquehanna hundreds of miles to preach the gospel to different people, and I'm sure that was a great blessing to him from time to time, but not that night. And if God should remove from you something that you would say is essential or you're challenged by it, there is a reason why the perfectly wise and good God does those kinds of things. Sometimes the Lord is teaching us that he can provide for us without things that we think we need. Turn over, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13. What do you need? Hebrews chapter 13. Remember this promise. Verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. In the original text, there are five different ways in that verse that the word not appears. There's emphasis. One writer said it's like he's saying, I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not leave you. He's not going to abandon you. And if you have him, but you don't have something else that you think that you need, but you have him, you have all. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes, the songwriter said, that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never 
No, never, no, never forsake. I think that's a play on that same thought that God is not going to forsake his own. And we don't believe that, do we, sometimes? We don't believe God's paying attention or that he cares. We're in need and we think it's, you know, i got to have it now. And that's another point that Pastor Flavel made. We don't trust that God is going to provide for us. We're just simply unbelieving. Cited Matthew 6. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So you're not informing him when you pray. Even when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, and you enumerate or you specify what you need, God knows what you need. Sometimes we think we need things we don't need. God knows what we need. He does tell us to pray. But his purpose for us, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You don't, I mean, just look at the, look at the flowers. Look at the birds. God's providing for them. Look at the sparrows. You are of much more worth than those sparrows. But he cares about the sparrows. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Went through a period of time in my life, our life as a family, about 12 years ago, where we had significant financial reversal. Unemployment, different circumstances, part-time jobs. And I was trying to make some extra money by buying and selling things, too. I just was just trying to provide for my family. Just a very challenging time. And I can testify the Lord brought us through that time, provided for us all the way, even did some special things we were not expecting. It was Mother's Day, and we could have made something at home for Mom. We wanted to do something special. We certainly didn't want her to have to cook. I don't remember what we had planned, if we did have anything planned. I know we were thinking about it. But someone walked up to us after a service at the church we were attending, handed us some gift cards. And we got to honor mom in a way that we were not expecting to. But we took that provision that day as the Lord certainly wanted us to honor mom. But he also wanted to show us that he was providing for us. We just have to trust him. So I've shared some thoughts with you that, and, and gone a little further than Pastor Flavel did in terms of his application, some illustrations. But I also want to just add one thing. Sometimes we're just unthankful for what we have. Have you ever looked around and just noticed what you possess? And if you had to put a dollar amount on what you possess, could you do it? In other words, things that you may have purchased, things that you own, things that were given to you, whatever. You just look around and see what you have. 
I'm not trying to get us to think like the rich fool, but I do want to encourage us to think in terms of the blessing that we have. I used to ask my students in high school, they came to class with their backpacks and different things, and I would say, all right, I want you to add up dollar value. Don't tell anybody. This is not a bragging. Just add up what you have with you today. Just think in terms of what you have. And I'd start to figure, calculate. And then following that, I would say, all right, now I want you to think about your bedroom and, and start to think in terms of what God's provided for you just there. And I could sometimes hear the gasps. It was like, oh, like, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And I'm really just talking about their bedroom. Some of them own cars as high school students. If you just stop and think in terms of what you have and all that goodness that you possess in this world, God gives graciously. Are you thankful for that? Have you expressed thanks for that? Yeah, it comes down to your daily meals, the food that God provides, that food and shelter that God gives us. Are we giving thanks to him for that? Turn to Genesis chapter 32 with me. Remember the story of Jacob leaving Laban? Facing Esau, he thought the way to obtain Esau's favor was to send a gift to Esau. But he's trusting the Lord. He's brought to between a rock and a hard place. I'm not sure if Laban was the hard place and Esau's the rock, whatever, but they're two tough circumstances. And he's praying. Look at verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am worthy, unworthy rather, of all of the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan. Now I have become two companies. Okay, we're thinking in terms of possessions, but if you have a family, think in terms of your spouse, your children. That's what he's thinking about here. For with my staff only, I cross this Jordan. Now I become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers and the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Okay, so he's thinking in terms of I need safety. The Lord is going to provide that. Notice the next chapter when he and Esau finally meet up. Verse 4, as they get close, Jacob is bowing, his family's bowing, Esau's running, verse 4, to meet him. But this gift that he had sent to Esau... Look at verse 8. It says, And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let, let what you have be your own. 
Okay, he had sent him quite a bit of stuff. If you read through the gifts, it's just all kinds of animals. And... But what does Esau say? I have plenty, my brother. Look at verse 10. Jacob said, no, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. You see the marginal note next to that word plenty? It's tra- if you're looking at the New American Standard. I have plenty. I have all. It's not the same word that Esau used. Verse 9 says, but Esau said, I have plenty. The word there means much. I have a lot. But Jacob says, I have all. What's the difference? I've got enough. I've got all I need. It's different from saying I have a lot. I'm not trying to get full insight into Esau's character through the difference in the wording, but I do think it's interesting that Jacob there is saying, I have all. I have all, all that I need. Jeremiah Burroughs, rare jewel of Christian contentment, who made that observation, those verses, he said, a Christian should say, I have not not only enough, but I have all. How did he have all? Because he had God who was all. See, that's what Jacob had that doesn't seem Esau had in his life. Though he had a father who knew the Lord, grandfather who knew the Lord, he did not himself. He was a profane person, the scripture says. He was not thinking in terms of eternity, but only this life. Burroughs went on to say, it was a remarkable saying of one, he has all things who has him that has all things. Surely you have all things because you have him for your portion who has all things. God has all things in himself and you have God for your portion and in that you have all. So do you have God? And God does have everything and if he chooses not to distribute to you right now, Do you need it? He's wise. He's good. And are you thankful for what he has given you now? That's my point. Sometimes we're just unthankful. And I just want to encourage you to be thankful for what you have. I think that's part of contentment is saying, look what I have. And I love that time when Someone shared an illustration of someone sitting at a Thanksgiving table with their family, and he just said, my cup overflows. Had all of his family there. But even if it was just the Lord, without anything else, our cup overflows. Let me briefly just address the charitable frame towards our neighbor, a 
loving attitude towards our neighbor. When God does something for someone, friend or neighbor, someone you're aware of, does that cause you jealousy, envy, or can you be thankful for that too? Especially as we think about our relationship to one another, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. So when God does something for someone else, He provides something for someone else. He did not provide for you in His wisdom. Can you rejoice with them and be thankful for what God has given to them? It's so hard for us because of our wicked hearts. And when they have what they have, as they have what they have, that neighbor, do you demonstrate goodwill towards them? In other words, not just when they obtain it, but the fact that they have it and you know it, can you maintain your contentment and your goodwill towards someone who you may otherwise be envious of? How should have Achan responded when he saw the spoil? That belongs to the Lord. Hey, come here, let's collect this. This needs to go to the Lord. It was not a hiding it, covering it, putting it in his tent. That was covetousness. How should David have responded when he saw Bathsheba? Turn away in embarrassment. That's another man's wife. Thank you, Lord, for your provision for me. And David's life, as in terms of his married life, he had multiple wives. So there was disorder there. Joseph's response when Potiphar's wife made advances towards him is appropriate. How can I, how can I sin against God? And my master, the only thing he's withheld is you because you're his wife. He's thinking in terms of Potiphar. Turn over to Exodus chapter 23. In other words, there was respect for those relationships. There was respect for those possessions, you might say. We're talking about Achan's looking at the things that belong to the Lord. Exodus chapter 23, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely take it to your barn and make sure he doesn't see you. Is that what it says? Of course not. No, it says you shall surely return it to him. And that's your enemy who is also apparently a neighbor. The possessions of someone who is antagonistic to you, somehow. Look at verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. So whatever the response there is, It's definitely one of goodwill 
the right attitude towards this person's possessions and loving them as a neighbor. Not of taking, not of pulling and wanting for myself, which if you saw someone, particularly verse 4, you saw something that belonged to another person, you could just say, well, they lost it, or I don't know how to get it back to them. No, there are ways. And in Israel, lost and found became the responsibility of the nation as they cared for and showed love to one another. Turn with me back to Luke chapter 3. There's many portions of Scripture that we could turn to that have lessons about covetousness. I found in the context of just studying this commandment and thinking about covetousness, this was an interesting one to me because John the Baptist is preaching. He's preaching a baptism of repentance as people are coming to him, they're repenting of their sins, they're being baptized as symbolic of that. Verse 10, it says, And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. Verse 12, and some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Verse 14, some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. How many of those have to do with covetousness or rather contentment? Can you be content with just one garment? I think based on what John is saying and based on the kind of garment, they should be able to be content with just this one kind of garment and if somebody doesn't have, share it with them. Rather than having two and this other person doesn't have any. And then food as well, if you have an abundance, there is to be a willingness to share. Not a take, not a hoard, but a willingness to give. And when it came time for tax collectors to collect, they were not to covet more than they were responsible to collect. If they did, they would be abusing people, taking more than they should have. And even the soldiers, notice what it says, do not take money from anyone by force. Why would they do that? Because they want the money. Be content with your wages. Repentance for each of these involves some matter of contentment, not and turning away from covetousness and being content, so content that if you have abundance, then you're willing to share. Paul said to the Ephesian, I, Ephesians, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. Paul's saying that while I was with you, I was actually working, and I was working to give. It was not just taking. I haven't desired anyone. You can tell based on my manner of life. And then he says, in everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Those words are not in the Gospels. Those are the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. We think the opposite. It's more of a blessing to get. There are times, of course, we have opportunity to give gifts and Christmas or whatever. And what do we want? We, we want? we want to get. But Jesus said the blessing is actually in the giving. The giving. I was talking with someone this week who had an opportunity to give in a number of different ways. And the person said, it's just such a blessing to give. We can miss out on that blessing because of our covetousness. Do you need to repent of covetousness? Do you need to put on contentment? Paul said, I have learned to be content. It was something he had to learn. And as you repent of that taking and wanting, desiring, greedy, you turn to giving, you actually become like your Savior as you give. Not only did he say it is more blessed to give than to receive, but he gave the ultimate sacrifice of his own life. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to give his life as a ransom for many. He came so that we could be given forgiveness. He came so that we could be given eternal life. This is who our Savior is. He's a giver. God is a giver. Every good thing, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness. There's no shadow of turning. He is a giver. And to be like Christ is a giver. It's to be like your Father in heaven. You may today look at your life and say, am I a giver or a taker? Am I someone who is wanting and taking or am I someone who is willing to give? And I, I do believe this is the way it is in our life, that what happens over time is we start to, we've been grabbing and our hand is used to grabbing, but God in his grace starts to open our hand and open our hand and open our hand so that we will give and give ultimately to him, but we also give to others as a demonstration of his love. It's fine to provide for your family. It's fine to save up for that purpose. So when it comes to even accumulating wealth, I think the question would be, why are you doing that? A good man, Proverbs 13, verse 22, it says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You know that rich fool wasn't thinking of himself. He wasn't, excuse me, wasn't thinking of his children. He wasn't thinking of his children's children. He was thinking of himself. So it, it is, the Bible, as it shows us the way of life, it's not saying I have to constantly be giving everything away. That's not, that's not the point even of the message or even the illustrations. Even the ant is commended for its wisdom in that it stores up. But it's part of a whole community, right? And that's not just for themselves. So as we look at the biblical teaching, we realize that God is 
encouraging us, teaching us to manage what he has provided us, certainly for ourselves, but if he gives us more than we need, we have to ask the question, why is that? I'll just close with this quote. I like what Dr. Hendrickson said in his commentary on Matthew. Naturally, if a person's real treasure, his ultimate aim in all his striving is something pertaining to this earth, the acquisition of money, fame, popularity, prestige, power, then his heart, the very center of his life, will be completely absorbed in that mundane object. All of his activities, including even the so-called religious, will be subservient to this one goal. On the other hand, if out of sincere and humble gratitude to God, he has made God's kingdom, that is, the joyful recognition of God's sovereignty in his own life and in every sphere, his treasure, then there is also where his heart will be. Money, in that case, will be a help, not a hindrance. Something of this nature must have been in mind when Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The heart cannot be in both of these places at the same time. It's an either-or proposition. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that your Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. We ask that you would do that today. That you would show, as you already have, impress upon that heart if there's a covetous heart that must repent. show the way of righteousness only through Jesus Christ and ultimately the judgment that will come for any soul that does not turn. Father, we thank you that you sent the Spirit. We thank you that he was promised by you and when our Savior, your Son, came to heaven, you sent the Spirit, and He indwells us who believe, and so we trust that even these words of Scripture, beyond just the preaching of them and our thinking upon them, will be applied. We ask that you would apply them so that, Lord, we might not live covetous lives, but that we might live contented lives, trusting in your your disposing to us of what you desire that we might be stewards. Lord, there may be consequences because of our covetousness that we cannot erase. And those failures certainly will be teachers, maybe for a while, of the right path. And so we pray that you'd help us to learn the lesson turn from our sin and to walk in the right path. And whatever comes our way in terms of your provision, help us to remember that we are stewards, that what we have belongs to you, that we belong to you, 
and that if you give us something, it's our opportunity to steward it for your purposes, for your glory. Give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn in closing to number 500. Be still, my soul. Stand together with me. Number 500. Hymn of trust in the Lord. Calling ourselves to trust in the Lord in all of our circumstances.